another episode of Crime and Coffee. I am Mike. And I'm Allison. Yeah, baby. How you doing? Good. It's a new year. It sure is. It's new a year. new me. It's a new you. New you, new me, new us, new 2022. everybody. Yeah, yeah. We are a married couple that goes over some kind of a crime every week. Um, take turns. This is my week, so that's why I started out the show. And um, then we kind of go over it and, um, you know, a little bit of talk back and forth and uh, who knows what will happen, right? Could you be never know. New mystery every time. We don't know. Yeah, we don't even know. You don't know. We don't know. We'll see. Yeah, join the team. So we are on uh, social media platforms on Instagram and Twitter at uh, Crime and Coffee 2. Crime and Coffee number two. And um, yeah, we'd love to have you and talk to you and give us some suggestions on other cases to do. We're more than happy to, uh, to entertain. So thanks for all the listeners out there. We've got a lot of nice notes over the, the holidays. I'm just saying, you know, listening to us and doing a great job and all that stuff. So thank you. We appreciate it very much and appreciate you listening and telling your friends and all that good stuff. Yeah, it's very encouraging. And the words mean more than you guys would even possibly know. I know you sent me some when I was at work. I was having a really tough day. And it just really picked me up and yeah. lifted my spirits. Yeah, super cool. So thanks so much for the people doing that. And even if you didn't, that's okay. That's thanks, okay. Thank I, you for being here. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, what's on tap? What's on tap uh, the last couple of weeks? You know, I know we've been, uh, you know, diligent about putting out episodes every Sunday. I think last time we released on Christmas because of the special that you covered, um, you know, the, well, not the case funny. took place on Christmas. Correct. Correct. So we released a day early on Christmas rather than the Sunday after. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like since we've recorded, it's just a blur. Yeah. Because we recorded days before Christmas to be prepared. So we haven't done this in a week and a half. It, it feels to you like we've been on track, but not for us. So you know how it is with Christmas. And then the week between Christmas and New Year's is just very weird. I never noticed that until it got pointed out recently. Yeah. And I worked all week. I didn't have any days off. So it was just like, you don't know like what day it is. What It's just very disorienting. Well, like I was on Twitter and some guy was like, I would have no idea what day it was today if I didn't have like a phone that told me that. Yeah. And I don't know. I was in a weird funk that week between Christmas and New Year's. I was low energy, not motivated, which normally I'm like a go, go, go type of gal. Yeah, I kind of liked it. Oh, man, I did not like it. You came home and like there was some stuff normally you'd be like, okay, we got to clean up this and this, this is un- unacceptable and whatever. <laughs> you make me sound really fun, Mike. Oh, I'm trying not to. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I want to be clear. You're not fun. Not, so normally no, if I kidding. I see things out of place, I'm like on it. I'm fixing it. I looked in the fridge, which just is a disaster. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to say it. Whatever. Yeah, I did. I had a whatever type of mentality. And then, of course, now Christmas has to come down. All the stuff you look around, and you're like, oh, man, I don't feel like doing this. It's so much fun to gather all the stuff and put it up and be like all festive. And then comes the downturn. Yeah, it's kind of like when you go on vacation and you're driving to vacation. It's like yeah. the best drive. And then when you have to turn around and come home it's just like (laughs) so yesterday we strapped down our work boots and took all of christmas down clean the house it just feels so fresh and what it take like four hours Uh, about five Five. but we cleaned as we went and it's just a good way to start the new year just like a nice clean slate and that's how i mentally feel i'm not a resolutions girl i just like having that fresh slate and saying like i can do kind of what i want to yeah it's a good start like a reset yeah i mean i i got on the scale this morning and i was like oh shit (laughs) i guess i shouldn't have ate that half pound of cheese with the fondue on on uh, friday which was new year's eve fondue sounds so fun but then you realize you're <laughs> drinking cheese we literally each ate like a half pound of cheese yeah well the good news we also had other like very nutritious things like bread we had like a half loaf of bread <laughs> and a 
half pound of cheese each. Yeah. And I get on the scale like an asshole this morning and not surprised, but still like, oh, shit. <laughs> so it's like, okay, just time to reset and just move forward. I remember I kept saying that in the bathroom. All I can do is just move forward. Yep. That's all I can do. Like, yes, Allison. Okay. <laughs> okay, Psycho. psychopath. Yeah, you got to take the L, you know, the, the, the loss and just say, I did it. And, and whatever. here we are. All you can do is change the future, not the past. Move forward. Right. So are you a resolutions guy? Um, it's funny that you're asking that somebody you've been married to for like almost 20 years. I'm not necessarily asking for my knowledge, I get it, you I get jackass. It. I, get it. I just want to make that clear. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, I don't set resolutions for, you know, per se, but I think it's a great opportunity to start new things. So like, you know, maybe make goals. I guess, you know, they call it a resolution as a goal. I don't really set myself out to do it, but I think it's a great time to review what you did the previous year. And how you'd like to change the next year. What you can do better. Right. So, you know, the good thing is for us, we got on our healthier track in June of 2021. So we're already almost to the finish line in terms. I mean, we're never finished. No, it's new lifestyle. One thing we are definitely focusing on is more um, readjusting back to plant-based eating. Yeah. We are not vegans in any way, shape, shape or form. But we do try to eat more plant-based foods. And that's what's always scared me about the whole vegetarian, vegan thing is just the label of being vegan or, you know, people watching you being like, "Eh, you ate bacon, you're not a vegan anymore, which I used to do the same thing. And it's, but it's just like, whatever, do your own thing. You can't put a label on me. Right. No, sir. I recognize that uh, plants made my body feel better and gave me better scientific numbers you know cholesterol wise and triglycerides wise so. yeah you like basically completely reversed your bad labs and normalized them yeah so it just goes to show like you always say to you meat is poison to my body yeah unfortunately i freaking love meat i don't you know mind animals deaths and stuff well, like that's that nice. i mean it's unfortunate but i eat them because they died for me you know so i i, I value their lives enough to be able to eat that I'm trying to like make it sound okay, but it sounds pretty bad either way. But um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so my reason for eating more plant based is not because of the animals necessarily. It's more just health wise. And I've never been a lover of meat ever, so I'm perfectly fine. Like last no night, kidding. we made a veg- vegan meatballs. I got a, a cookbook for Christmas, Jessica Seinfeld's. It's called Vegan at Times. Wonderful book, and um, that's from that recipe, and it was delicious. Yeah, it was really good. I mean, not as good as a regular Italian meatball. But I mean, it just feels better eating healthier. Well, you don't feel dirty inside. Yeah. And then tonight we're doing a mushroom stroganoff. Yeah. And I told my neighbor while we were hanging out in the neighborhood on New Year's Eve about this awesome tofu scramble I make in the mornings that kind of looks like eggs. It's made to look like eggs. It just, I love it. It tastes fantastic. I put it on top of some sourdough bread with some vegan cheese. And he was like looking at me with eyes wide His open. Face. Like, it sounds terrible. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I like it. He's a skinny little guy. And he's like, I like to put butter uh, and then bacon on top of the butter and then fry that Crack up real some nice. eggs. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I like that stuff too. Just my body doesn't, unfortunately. Yeah. So other than that, our son is home safe and sound. Um, yeah. That has he been very... I, maybe that was part of my funk. I'm sure it was. He left the Sunday after Christmas, the 26th, and I was just sick inside. You know, he's 13 years old. You know, to put your kid on a plane by himself to another city, and granted, I know he's going to good hands. Yeah, His uncle met him at the gate, 
but it's like he's out of our control. He's in the car with other people that are driving. I'm not there. I thoroughly believe you have to let your kids out to do this kind of stuff so they can mature and they can learn new things and not be under your your breast, you know, basically like, I don't know what to do, ma. And he did fantastic. He had a layover in Pittsburgh yesterday. Which was not planned. No. He was directly flying from Chicago back to Tampa, but they were calling for snow in Chicago. His flight got canceled. Now all of a sudden he's getting on a flight that has a layover in Pittsburgh for like five hours. <laughs> I'm just picturing my kid in an airport in another city wondering, what if that flight gets canceled? Then what? Then they figure it oh, out. Oh, I was sick to my stomach. I ended up sobbing on the couch yesterday. It's just scary. And as a parent, you do have, I picture it like a kite. You just have to year by year, gradually like put that string farther out. And it's it's scary. Yeah, but the string, eventually you have to let it go. Too. I know, but it's, it's really hard. It's harder than I ever thought it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah, you're also a stressed type of person, so and emotional. I'm very it, emotional, and I get it. I worry about him too, but nothing I can do. And you know, at some point, he's going to be out with his jackass friends when he's 16, oh, driving that scares in cars. The shit out of me. I used to drive like an asshole at 16. I always think of that line from um, Finding Nemo. What does um, Marlon say? If you don't ever let anything happen to him, then nothing will ever happen to him. It's uh, Ellen it's DeGeneres. actually Dory, Dory says that. Yeah. yeah, but it's very true, and I actually have to think about that. Like he has to live, he has to learn, he has to gradually. Know how to be in the world by himself. Take calculated risks. Yeah, and he did fantastic. We FaceTimed him while he was walking through the airport. You suggested some sandwich shop that's famous in Pittsburgh. Yeah, everywhere I go travel-wise, I try to have what they're known for. And in Pittsburgh, it's Permanente Brothers Sandwiches. The people in years used to go to the Pittsburgh Steelers game still do, and they fill up on Permanente Brothers sandwiches because they're affordable and huge sandwiches with like French fries and coleslaw on the sandwich. And I was like, buddy, you got to get one of these places. You got to get one of these sandwiches if it's in the airport. And we found it. And he's like, wait, I see Chick fil A, I see McDonald's. And I looked on the map. I'm like, okay, it's like right behind you. Turn around. And it's like that way by Starbucks. He's like, oh yeah, I found it. And he did so good. I mean, he got sat at a table like a, a, an adult, and we heard like the interaction, and he did so well. And then he, even tip the guy properly. He's like, yeah, it's like 20%. So it was $16. I gave a $4 tip. We're like, oh my gosh, you're like a functioning human. <laughs> we were like floored. We we're like, oh my God. Like we were so scared that he wasn't going to tip. Well, I would have made him go back. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But he's like, no, no, I figured 20%. So I gave him a little more than that. Oh. I'm like, holy cow, you're like a human being. But my my chest was like so much lighter this morning, waking up knowing he was home. I went in his room and just gave him a big kiss on his head. Oh, I'm just yeah. so happy he's here. Anyway. Enough about us. Enough about us. Yeah, let's get down to the the goods here so it's my week and this is one i've been looking at for a long time and something i've wondered about for a long time in my life before we even did this podcast okay this is going to be interesting so i'm going to say the name okay and you tell me what you know okay sounds good db cooper I've never heard that in my life. Really? No, but I swear some of these cases we talk about, I'm like, what rock was I living under? Well, this isn't something, this happened in 1971. So Okay, obviously that was before we were born. Yeah, yeah. But this is a name that just kind of pops up in pop culture a lot. I've never heard of this name before. So the the, the thing that instantly popped up to me was Kid Rock, his his song Bawa Daba. Okay, I know that song. Yeah. So one of the lines in Bawa Daba is he's like, to the... To the, you know, all my homies in the county in cell block six, you know, remember that line? I don't know. Well, there's also, I don't know the, any of the words of that okay. song except well, for Bob, but the Bob, yes, nailed it, nailed it. <laughs> diggy, diggy, dong. <laughs> so there's, there's one line where he's like, uh, to DB Cooper and the money he took. 
And there's, you know, so this is the story of D.B. Cooper. It's one of the most infamous American crimes of all time. Mm, okay. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm really happy you don't know about it. And I'm, yeah, this is more my style, taking these kind of big, mysterious kind of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're kind of the more the murderer lady. I mean, say. obviously, the stories are horrific that yeah. we cover. Oh, yeah. But it's nice to do a different yeah. type of... So settle on, folks. I'm going to tell you about D.B. Cooper. November 24th, 1971. I imagine right around Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving Eve, as a matter of <gasps> fact. Yeah. It's, uh, we're in Portland, Oregon. Okay. A man named Dan Cooper paid $20 for the 245 flight um, through Northwest Orient Airlines out of uh, Seattle-Tacoma. Uh, it's a short 30-minute flight. And uh, just so you know, $20 in 1971, because I know you wonder. Just I like am I wondering. It's $20. It's <laughs> like, what? A $20 flight? Yeah, right now it's about 130 bucks. Okay. So it's a pretty really expensive, short... though, for such a short flight. Yeah. Like, what would the drive have taken? Maybe uh, a few hours? Um, It's about 30 minutes to Fort Lauderdale from here. So probably three, three or four yeah, hours. Yeah. Okay. So. I mean, depending. I'm, I'm sure planes are faster now. But mm-hmm. um, and at, the, at that point, still, it was looked at as like a luxury to get on the plane. A lot of business people, mm-hmm. you know, everybody dressed up to get on the plane. Yeah, smoked on the plane. Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, and in 1971, there's no, like, security or identity checks. Like, you don't even, it's basically like getting in your own car. Hmm. You're just paying 20, or in a bus. You know, you're like, oh, here's 20 bucks, I'm going to get on the bus. And you're not showing identification at this point in time? Nope, wow. Yeah, you could be carrying, like, a machine gun, um, That's bombs. crazy. You could, you know, a kilo of cocaine. Um, I mean, you really, you could have anything on you. Nobody's checking you. There's no, you're not walking no through anything. x-ray machines and yeah. things like that. I mean, yeah. that seems unbelievable at this point. Obviously, we came from a pre-9-11 time when anyone can walk you to the gate. You had to go through security, but, you know, you could go with a family to see you off. But, yeah. you know, this is like a whole other bag of tricks. Yep. So this Dan Cooper, he calls himself, uh, paid 20 bucks and got on the flight, the 245 flight through Northwest Orient Airlines. Hmm. So, yeah, defunct airline. And he all. was going from Seattle? Um, Let's see. From Portland to Seattle. Portland to Seattle. Mm-hmm. Yep. So this Dan Cooper, he was a slim man, um, nondescript, about six feet tall. He was wearing mirrored sunglasses, and he kind of dressed like a businessman uh, in a nice suit and everything. Mirrored sunglasses inside the airport? Um, yeah. Well, I imagine you have to walk to the tarmac to get onto the, mm-hmm. That's what I picture anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, just kind of a cool-looking dude, I guess. Yeah. No, not cool. I picture just, like the Terminator. Yes. Kinda. Yeah, actually, he looked very similar to that guy. <laughs> really? The T2 yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very similar. So he sat towards the back of the plane. Uh, the stewardess Florence Schaffner took his drink order. It was a bourbon and soda, mm. which kind of I'm um, definitely going to try after reading the story. So at this point, you know, 1970s bourbon and 7-Up was kind of a big, high-class kind of drink. Uh, Cooper enjoyed a few Raleigh cigarettes. Of course, there we go. Smoking yeah. on the plane. I mean, why not? You're in an enclosed, enclosed yeah. you know, thing. Why not light a fire right. on that? Well, he was waiting for his bourbon and soda. So that sounds like just living the high life there. Can you imagine sitting next to a person on the plane smoking? <laughs> no. What a nightmare. I know. It's crazy. It sounds like hell. Right. We were talking with the kids the other day. It's like anybody that still smokes now, I mean, we know how bad it is for you. Yeah, I guess you it's a really it. addictive habit, though. Yeah, it's a hell of a drug. So anyways, um, you know, once the plane's up in the air, Dan Cooper hands Florence Schaffner a note. She was used to getting notes from passengers because, you know, people flirting with her, especially businessmen, because she was cute and everything. And she would just kind of put it in her pocket and she was like, all right, I'll read it later. But he was kind of staring at her. Like, read it. Yeah, like nodding. Like, read this note. So um, he kept staring at her. She looked at it and it said something along the lines of, Miss, I have a bomb with me and I'd like you to sit by me. Oh, shit. So it's it's on. 
she was shocked and she asked if he was serious she like sat there like like this isn't a funny joke yeah, yeah dan yeah and he's like no i assure you i have a bomb oh my gosh so she goes up to the other stewardess they call they're called stewardesses at this mm-hmm. time in case anybody's getting all yeah like you're a little uh old-fashioned there mike right no no they're called stewardesses and whether right or wrong that's that was their their titles mm-hmm. so um, so she told another stewardess and she, they're like, you know, the other stewardess came over. They're like, sir, are you like, you're serious really? And he's like, yeah. And then he opens up his briefcase. They called it an attache. An um, attache? Yeah. Which I don't know. Is, is that French? I don't know. It's a briefcase. Interesting. Yeah. So he opens his briefcase. It has exactly what you would expect from the movies. It's got wires. Like, yeah. Wires and the timer and, you know, two, the, the red sticks and mm-hmm. everything like oh dynamite. My goodness. And he's holding like two, two wires together. And not together, but he's holding them apart. Okay. And he's like, I'm going to blow this thing. Um, you're going to do what I say. That's scary as shit. Yeah. Yeah. So they're just like, holy shit, this is, this is serious. Um, so right away, the stewardesses tell the pilot, they're just like, we've got a situation here. Um, got a guy with a bomb. He's going to have some demands and we're going to have to get him for mm-hmm. him. Basically. Got to figure out what is his intention here. Yep. So the pilot radios ahead to Seattle Tacoma Airport, SeaTac, as they call it. And he's like, we're being hijacked. Oh, um, my gosh. So right away, the FBI is alerted. As you can imagine, you know, things are in a tizzy. And they're like, okay, what what the hell's going on? What does he want? What is he looking for? So as far as his demands are concerned, he wants $200,000 placed in a... From def- who? Who's this money coming from? The, the pilot? Anybody. I don't... doesn't matter. He doesn't care where it comes from. Okay. He's not asking for a specific... Probably the airlines, I would guess. Okay. So he wants $200,000. Yep. Placed in a duffel bag. Along with four parachutes. Okay. Mm-hmm. He specifically asked for negotiable American currency. Hmm. What does that mean? Um, it's just something that somebody from America probably wouldn't ask for. So they're guessing this this person's you know probably not from America. Okay. Um, but I mean, he spoke perfect English. He and never... no accent or anything. Nope. Nothing like that. So Dan Cooper. That sounds pretty American. Yeah. And just to tell you, so I, I referred to him as D.B. Cooper. Mm-hmm. So the whole reason, like everybody knows him as D.B. Cooper. The whole reason he's called D.B. Cooper, one uh, newspaper article referred to him accidentally as D.B. Cooper. Really? Yeah. He, he, he His given name at the, you know, when he gave his name was Dan Cooper, but they printed D.B. Cooper. And it, it was, just stuck. It was actually D.A. Cooper if he had some kind of middle name. but It, it they, looked like a B? Yeah. So they did, they put in D.B. Cooper. Oh. And it sounded cooler. So a bunch of other newspapers were like, ooh, D.B. Cooper. That's so funny. So his middle name isn't even a B? No. <laughs> okay. Like, it came out of nowhere. It's His name was not D.B. Cooper. That's pretty funny. It was, it was just Dan a misprint Cooper. in a newspaper. Yeah. And that's not even his name. That was an alias. Okay. Got it. So it's uh, this is a fake person. Mm-hmm. And not only is Dan Cooper fake, but D.B. Cooper wasn't even the name that he mm-hmm. used. So I, I found that fascinating. It's yeah. Just, so, and they were like, it almost like seemed way cooler because he had these aviator glasses. And this whole thing came into like, kind of view this guy as kind of cool so mm, it was it nothing was really, cool about this no not at all so anyways he asked for uh, 200k uh four parachutes he specifically asked for a negotiable american currency like i said um he also asked they, they think that he asked for four, for four parachutes so that they'd assume he'd be taking some hostages with him to like jump out of the plane but they're gonna have to land to get these things right so what he, the hell do you need a parachute for when you're on the ground oh he's gonna land don't worry so he, you know, it was kind of interesting. He he thought this out and thought, okay, well, if they're going to give me a bad parachute, I may as well ask for more so that they think I'm bringing other people so they don't kill the hostages as well, which is kind of smart, mm-hmm. uh, I guess. So he was intending to land, get this stuff, get back on another plane to go up in the sky with these parachutes? Same plane. Same plane, just go back up. Yep. Okay. 
So the demands were written on notes and given to the pilot to relay to the authorities. A little while later, Cooper demanded these notes back, which is why we don't have any pictures of them. We don't have exactly what. Like when I said the note to the stewardess, that's, you know, we don't know exactly what it said. All that, well, she can say is it said something like this. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, stressful situation. It's, uh, it's a little bit different. But so anyways, Northwest Orient, the airlines quickly agreed to the demands. And they're scrambling, trying to find 200K in cash. Um, so authorities secured the money from a, a bank in Seattle. And they noted the serial numbers on the cash. So just to be able to track up track it. wherever it's used. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they're preparing to land. And Cooper continues to smoke through about half a pack while he's sipping his bourbon and soda. Nobody else on board. No passengers knows this is happening right now. Okay, so they're trying to keep the chaos down. Yeah. I read an article that said that they asked a lot of the passengers to come to the front of the plane just for, they're like, well, we're delayed a little bit. They did have to circle uh, a couple times, like waiting for the money to be prepared and waiting for the parachutes to be brought together. And they're, you know, they just kind of went over the loudspeaker like, oh, we're having some engine problems. We're just kind of burning through some fuel. We'll be fine. Okay. So they try to keep people calm, but I'm sure passengers were like, why the hell do they want us to move up? Yeah. Well, they're, you know, they obviously every single uh, passenger on plane was interviewed at some point by a newspaper or something. And, and there was one kid that was like, yeah, um, I, I sat by him and I heard the, the pilot announced that everybody should get to the front. I kind of ignored it cause I didn't care. And then looking back now, it makes sense why they'd want us all in the front. Mm-hmm. But he's like, no, I remember this guy and he seemed cool and like nothing weird at all. He just seemed you know, like a regular businessman sitting there enjoying some cigarettes. Mm-hmm. So um, eventually they were circling and then they landed. Um, so as soon as they landed, Cooper made sure that the plane taxied to a remote part of the runway so that it's not a you know, highly trafficked area or he can be shot from different directions and such. Um, the passengers, like I said, really had no idea what was happening, but they were kept on board until, uh, Cooper knew that he had his money and his parachutes. Okay. And that was just based on word. Yes, sir. The money is waiting for you here at the gate. Um, when he had somebody walk up. It was okay. Actually, so they actually physically brought it to him. Yeah. The head of the airport. Okay. Came up and said, here's, here it is. So he, he also made sure that he was not in any kind of official looking clothing so that he wouldn't think it was a cop or okay. something. So. Yep, he waited until the guy officially brought the bags, gave it to one of the stewardesses, plopped it on D.B. Cooper's, Dan Cooper's lap, and he's like, okay, everybody can get off. Okay. So all the passengers were able to get off, and also that stewardess that served him the bourbon and soda, she was able to get off. Okay. Um, He did keep the pilots and a couple of uh, crewmates on. Obviously, somebody's got to fly the plane. Yep. So they remained captive. Um, And just because I was curious, the money... Um, so it's, they're all $20 bills. So he never asked for hundred dollar bills or anything like, you know, it was kind of interesting. So they just gave him all twenties and the sack weighed about 23 pounds. Wow. I bet. So it's pretty, pretty hefty. And $200,000 at this time is about 1.3 million. Wow. So pretty big stack of cash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty much set for life type of money. Yeah. All right. So anyways, the plane refueled and was cleared for taking off. Um, but this specific plane, a Boeing 727-100, because Cameron, last night he came in, his was a 727-900, uh, or 737-900. Um, so anyways, this is Boeing Boeing 727-100. It's capable of quick fueling because of its single-point fueling, um, which at the time was kind of unique, that they could plug in the fuel into one area, and it filled all the tanks all around. Okay. I guess normally it's like they have to... Switch them. Yeah, plug in here and here and here. So they, you know, there was also some other things I'm going to mention here, but they thought that he had working knowledge of some air, airlines or you know, at some point. Um, so whether that was in armed forces or he worked in the airline industry somewhere, mm-hmm. 
like they were like he picked this plane for a reason okay um so yeah they uh let's see they filled all the tanks um and then cooper also demanded that they fly at a low altitude obviously because he's planning on jumping here okay why Um, the hell so they wanted he wanted them to fly no higher than ten thousand feet and he wanted the landing gear flaps down, or landing gear down, and the flaps down to like I think fifteen degrees. He said, "Okay, very um, specific." Yep, and limit the speed of the plane to near one hundred miles per hour. Oh wow, which is slow. Yeah. So this particular aircraft also is one of the only commercial airline airlines capable of doing this. What does a normal plane fly at uh, miles per hour? Cam's flight last night was like five hundred. Okay, and this was one hundred. Yeah. Okay, so a fifth of what's normal. Yeah. So they, you know, looking back at it, they were around one fifty, you know, one hundred fifty miles an hour or something like that. But it's very unique. Most planes, the going this slow would stall out. Okay. Um. Yeah, but this particular aircraft could do it again, doing. showing he had knowledge of this particular aircraft. Correct. It wasn't just random. Like, I want you to go 100. And they're like, like no. sir, that's not possible. Yeah. He's like, no, I want you to go 100. I know this plane. Okay. It, it, we could do this. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think I'm going to mention it a little bit later, but this particular plane is one of the only ones that has an aft stairs. So stairs in the back. Okay. Going. That you can lower during flight. Huh. And you know, while you're flying, this, wow. this can like drop down and it has stairs you can just kind of run off of. So, okay. you know, you picture a current commercial jet and you're like how the hell would you jump out of the jet no you know, yeah a door would have to be opened up and then everybody would be sucked out basically right right but you know this one is capable of opening huh. up in the back okay so just a perfect scenario right now for as you know as far as what he's looking for so as far as where they're going he wants to go to mexico city okay and they're like huh you know, just he's like, fuel it up, fuel it up. And he gave them the exact route that he was taking. So he knew exactly, it, you know, they have different letters and stuff, a 32 route or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So he, they get, they get up in the air. He's like, look, we're going to Mexico city. Then the airplane pilots like, no, we don't have enough gas. We got to stop somewhere. Okay. So you can stop in like Albuquerque or Reno. And they said, let's stop in Reno Okay. for more fuel before mm-hmm. we get to Mexico city. So, in the meantime, the authorities are, like, scrambling, trying to talk to Mexico, trying to talk to Reno, trying to get things together. Like, we sure. got a guy with a bomb on the plane. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, so um, they're up in the air. Um, let's see. Perfectly made for this scenario. Oh, yeah. So, the aft stairs. Um, and that, that particular thing that I talked about, the aft stairs being able to be lowered during flight, was unique. Like, they would never tell a civilian air flight crew. So, like, the the stewardesses would have no idea that that could be lowered. Like, Hmm. they were never informed. Civilians were never informed that that could actually happen. So, they figured that he probably had some kind of a, uh, you know, armed forces knowledge because they used a lot of these 727s in the wars to be able to drop products and and supplies and stuff to military right uh, overseas and you know it could have been anything he could have been like somebody that helped build these planes you know mm-hmm. just some sort of knowledge and understanding yeah so whether he was a guy that actually dropped out of him or maybe he was a, a cargo um assistant or something and he knew like yeah uh, this particular <laughs> um aircraft can do this why did this orient airlines have this capability like in what way would a commercial airline need these stairs i understand in the sense of the war or whatever when they're dropping things but a commercial airline why would they need these stairs yeah it's a good question i don't know i guess you know it's just one of the newer technologies and they're like oh yeah well let's do it you know, why never... put it on there right i, I don't, don't i don't know okay don't know. for whatever reason i'm sure there's some kind of reason i'm not a plane guy i don't mm-hmm. know so 
You're not? I thought you were in the plane industry. Well, I am now, now that I know the story. Okay, good. I'm, well, you could probably be a pilot now. Pretty close. Yeah. I mean, I have computers and video games and stuff. Yeah, so. you're good. Yeah, I've landed up before in the, <laughs> the video games. So anyways, um, yeah, that was never known to civilian flight crews. He likely had some kind of training somewhere. So also, you, as you'd imagine, two Air Force jets were following them the whole time just in case something crazy happened or whatever mm-hmm. if they were needed to shoot it down or you know whatever but the problem is the air force jets can't go 100 miles an hour so okay they're going you know four or five hundred so they have to keep on circling, circling yeah yeah so they're into the air just circling this thing and you know all kinds of crazy shit's happening so uh they're in the air and now it's about seven forty-two p.m so it's dark outside um cooper tells all the crew members to go to the cockpit so something's going to happen here. Oh, that's so scary. So the cabin was getting very cold. They talked to the crew members. They said it had to be below zero just because oh. of the altitude. In the cabin? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. So it was getting very cold. He's like, all right, this is the time. Everybody move up to the front. Oh. Okay. So at 8 p.m., the flight crew saw a warning light saying that the rear stairs were lowered. So he, he went and lowered these. Yep. Um, he had one of the stewardesses before they went back show him how to lower it. Okay, so he did not have knowledge as to how to lower these stairs. Yes. Okay, so then you would think, was he? Well, maybe it was different. Then maybe there's like slight dip button differentiators or something. You know, like maybe if he had it in his his experience, it was just really easy to just mm-hmm. kind of pull a lever. Whereas yeah, this these is a, are different. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, also, what is interesting, that it can't be controlled from the front. That's what surprised me when you said everyone went to the front and he did this. Yeah. So it's the, he knew that they can't control it. Okay, interesting. Yep. So this warning light came on, so the rear stairs were being lowered. Uh, about 15 minutes later, the crew said they felt a sudden upward motion. like It pulled up. Yeah, exactly. Which I was like, for such a big plane, would you really feel that, I guess? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe he officially dropped it at that point mm-hmm. or whatever. And yeah, the, the it airflow. catches. Yeah, exactly. So they felt that, and they assumed this is the time that Dan Cooper jumped out of the plane with $200,000. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the plane landed in Reno, as expected, and all the, the flight crew was just staying in the front because oh. they were told not to move. Okay, I thought he wanted to ultimately get to Mexico City, so why would he jump out before they've even reached Reno? Well, throwing a or, curveball. Yeah, okay. Yeah, That just, makes sense. Yeah, I'm sure To not be caught. Right. I mean, all part of the, the plan. Okay, he may or may not be on the plane still. They don't know. Correct. At this point, they're like, okay, they're thinking he's on there. He may have jumped. He may have not. Like, let's look for him. Mm-hmm. Look for clues, whatever it is. So the plane lands in Reno, swarmed by authorities, and Dan Cooper is nowhere to be found. Okay. And can I ask you, this is random, but why was it zero degrees on the plane? The higher you go in altitude, the colder it gets. Uh-huh. So they were, what, 10,000 feet in the air? Right. But and normally, planes fly at, what, 30,000 feet? Oh, it's freezing out there. But if why was it outside, cold in the plane? Because the, the, I think the back thing, oh, they had the landing gear down and stuff okay, like that. Okay. So, yeah. Just curious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was like uh, basically a, a shit job, you know. It was not flying how it should be flying, right. and all the things that they were doing. So, um, yeah. So they're in Reno, and the, Dan's nowhere to be found. Yep, they say it would have been impossible for him to get out of the plane after it landed because they were, had eyes everywhere. Basically, people planted everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't. Yeah, you, know, you picture in the movies, he just jumped down off the landing gear and just like ran. You know, Meh, <laughs> I'm out of here, coppers. And no sign of the briefcase. No sign. No. Um, they did find his tie though. Okay. So that was interesting you can see that it's got like a little pearl clip on sort of thing. Um, so yeah, he must've jumped and this right now is the only unsolved airplane hijacking in us history. And, um, did they estimate about where he may have jumped out? Like when they felt that pull and yep. 
Okay, so at least to try to pinpoint where he may be. Yeah, what they say is that's an Ariel Washington, like Ariel, like the Little Mermaid. Uh huh. Um, that Ariel the- Washington. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, and they still have parties to this day, like DB Cooper parties and stuff, and be like, "Hey, he's probably here somewhere." What? You know, they they basically got put on the map because Ariel Washington mm-hmm. jumped in the area. So right away, they're like, "Okay, we got to try to find this guy." Um, overnight composite sketches were drawn from the witness statements and the, the stewardesses and the people on the plane. They drew the picture. They felt very accurate. They're all like, yep, that's him. hundred mm-hmm. uh, percent. Aviation experts calculated his drop zone, obviously. And they estimated he jumped right around eight ten PM with all the math involved with wind and whatnot. There was about 28 square miles where he could have landed. Okay. So his parachute didn't have steering on it or anything. They gave him very basic stuff. Um, I think I probably mentioned this later, but he had, they gave him two forward parachutes and two like rear parachutes. So like two ones that go on your back and two of them that go on the front in case the back one doesn't open up. Mm-hmm. And they specifically, I don't know if it was on purpose, but they gave him like an older model and a newer model. And then there was even one that was stitched together that um, he ended up using like taking with him but he wouldn't able to like it wouldn't be able to open okay and then he had to have had knowledge as to how to put a parachute on and operate it i wouldn't know yeah like basic knowledge yeah i mean i i wouldn't have the faintest idea of how to put it on right he had to have some kind of training at some point yeah yep so um so yeah they they drew the sketch um he was around 28 square miles of where he could have landed so right away it's like Thanksgiving, 1971, and one of the biggest manhunts in U.S. history began. And he had to have known where to jump because otherwise he could land potentially in like the middle of a neighborhood or in the water or something like that. And I imagine it was pretty cold out. So I bet you he knew where he wanted to jump. Within a few miles or yeah, a few hundred miles, I would guess. And he'd probably want to go into a remote area where he could safely land without houses and such. Correct. Yep, exactly. So you're thinking along the same lines. So there's tons of FBI agents, the National Guard, helicopters flying all over this area, mm-hmm. basically. I mean, just picture it carpeted with just tons of people, flashlights all over the place. They're trying to find anything. Mm-hmm. The parachute, the money, the you know, A guy clothes. walking along. Right. Whatever. So uh, at the FBI, at the time, the FBI figured this guy must have been a very experienced parachuter and or a pilot. Mm-hmm. So... You know, while they're looking for this guy, they're currently also going in and trying to research any kind of criminal history with a parachuter or a pilot involved in the area, mm-hmm. basically. So, um, you know, they, they couldn't really turn up anything. They couldn't find not even a, a shoe, not even like anything at all. And I mean, they looked hard all over the place and just pretty much vanished. Basically. And he could have landed like in a foresty area and just like hit out for a couple of days. Yeah. There's, and depending who you talk to, the, you know, some people say, I mean, there's no way he could have survived this thing. They're like, it was 170 miles an hour. It was pitch black outside. These parachutes were not great. They were like base, you know, to try to save your life, basically. They weren't like professional steerable parachutes there were something you know but regardless they never found a body or the parachutes like laying out in a field somewhere so he's probably somewhere right he packaged <laughs> them up and took them with him he knew what he was doing is what it sounds like so yeah they're they're looking all over the place can't find anything um on april 7th 1972 so a few months later mm-hmm. a guy under the alias james johnson committed an almost identical hijacking so this is, and the, this wasn't the only one, but there's like starting to be copycats. Okay. I was just going to say a copycat. Yeah. And they're like, 
this is starting to happen. So they're like, we got to put some clamps on this. Yes, ship. this I mean, is getting out of hand. <laughs> you can't just have people going up in the air demanding, you know, millions of dollars. No, and well, like they're going to go broke. Someone's going to get hurt. <laughs> yeah, right. Somebody's going to die eventually. Yeah. Somebody's actually going to explode the, the, the plane. So the FBI thought, hey, maybe this is him doing again. This is D.B. Mm-hmm. Cooper. Whatever. I'm sure they got a description of this James Johnson. Yep. And so uh, the guy's name was Richard McCoy. This James Johnson yep, James was Richard Johnson McCoy. Is actually Richard McCoy. He was arrested on suspicion of both hijackings. Um, this hijacking and obviously um, the DB Cooper. Yep. And his picture was shown to the people that talked to DB Cooper. And they said, nope, not him. Okay. So totally, you know, they're looking into this guy. He had some of the, I, ha- I have a list of like 15 possible people it could have been. I'm not going to go through them all. Right. Don't worry, What's people. the point? Yeah. But it's like, he, a lot of them were just like, nope, it's not him because they, they end up showing the picture to the stewardesses and the I didn't, you know the wit, eyewitnesses and they're like, no, that's not him. Well, or, obviously a person can change their hair color, grow facial hair and this and that, but they can't change their stature. Right. You know, if you walked on versus like our friend's husband, Mark, you guys have a completely different build. We know it's not the same person. Correct. Exactly. So uh, they kept on, they interviewed thousands of people, like thousands and thousands of suspects and you know just really came up with close to nothing so this james johnson aka richard mccoy did the same thing with the parachutes and everything yeah and actually he got away with 500 grand wow and the reason they caught him um i'm pretty sure it's this guy i read so many of these things but uh, he was bragging to some people at a bar dude you you got out of the plane with a friggin parachute shut your trap no it was before oh okay like talking about what he was going to do db cooper you know he only asked for 200 grand he's like if i went up there i'd ask for 500 grand and sure enough it was 500 grand that this guy got jeez so um they ended up finding him at his house um (laughs) yeah and he they they searched his house and they found the parachute stuff and everything like in his house and his wife didn't know he was like she's like wow we're living very comfortably all of a sudden (laughs) yeah we're millionaires i don't know where it came from but gosh darn it i like this life my husband isn't questioning any of my purchases (laughs) we're gonna do this so, yeah, they ran into a lot of dead ends, and nothing fruitful really happened until February 7th, 1980. Wow, 1980, so nine years later. Yeah, yeah, and this is still, like, not even a huge thing. Like, on the banks of the Columbia River, uh, a fa- not Columbia, the, the country, but the Columbia River, mm-hmm. Washington or whatever, um, a father and son found bundles of moldy cash with rubber bands around them. The serial numbers matched the serial numbers stolen by Dan Cooper. Oh, it was $5,800. Why would he leave it? Great question. So 5800 out of the two hundred k. Yeah, but still, I mean, that's a lot of money. Yeah, oh, it's a good chunk of change. Um, there was a bunch of problems with it. So it was outside of the original search area. Okay. So all of a sudden, cops were like, oh, my God, did we like miscalculate? Look in the wrong area. <laughs> yeah. Or they're like, okay, maybe it, he landed in the water, died, and... You this know, washed up. Right, right. So... Um, but then how would it have like, I guess it could have popped out of the briefcase. Sure. And just years of, you know, corrosion and, mm-hmm. and whatever, who knows? Um, well, no, it wasn't in the briefcase. He had a sack of money. Oh, a sack. Okay. Yeah. The, the bomb was in the briefcase. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it was more than 20 miles outside of the area and in the opposite direction of where the wind was blowing that night. Mm-hmm. So, so it wouldn't have carried him there. No, he wasn't there landing. No possible way of getting to that location again, because of the, Lack of steering on the parachutes, the wind blowing the opposite direction, just impossible. And not only that, but geologists 
ended up looking at the area and surveying it and everything. And they figured out that the area the cache was found was dredged in 1974. So the cache found its way there about three years after the hijackings in 1971, meaning that it wasn't very likely at all that this cache floated all the way to this location. Um, Nobody knows how it showed up. There's theories that Cooper himself maybe came over there and hid the cache just to kind of screw with authorities and be like, kind of throw them off, kind of get, get the back in the news again and be like, okay, well, DB Cooper, uh, all of a sudden it's all over the place. We found some of the cash. You think he would just want to have the money. Right. I mean, it's only 5,800. I mean, you could put a bundle of, you know, a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars and derail them. Why choose 5,800? So it's reportable so okay. that somebody doesn't just find it and they're like, oh, well, a hundred bucks. It's mine now. Yeah. yeah. This is a bag of cash and it's, it's, it's like a weird thing. And like nothing really came out of this. They found it and it's like, and oh. And that was it. Yeah. Like I have, I mean, nowadays it's a lot different. Obviously, you know, one, this wouldn't happen right now because of the security sure. and everything, but uh, just the DNA and stuff like that. Like they, they did reopen it a few times and they're like, okay, well, let's check. Um, yeah, there was some DNA on the tie, but they say that they can't say for sure that it was DB Cooper's DNA. Um, but you know, just the the whole mystery continues to be kind of romanticized right now. And like, we don't even know if his bomb was real or not. No, no idea. Because he took he it took with it him. Yep, he took it all. He took all the notes. He took everything. Like, mm-hmm. this was very well planned out. Basically. Yeah, very clean. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he was just... Yeah, people say that he was a guy sticking it to the man. Like, that's kind of how he's viewed right now. It's like sticking it to the man. Yeah, I'm like, no, this was an illegal activity. Yeah, okay? I'm this sorry. Is- I can go hold up a <laughs> bank right now. That doesn't mean I'm sticking it to the man. Well, and I guess it happened around the time of, you know, some war protests and things. And people were like, yeah, man, against authority, man. That's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but all told, the FBI had interviewed over a thousand suspects without really a lot of luck and i'm going to go over a couple of my favorite ones um just to you know you can go to wikipedia and read about like 10 different suspects and it's like insane how many possible people this could have done and there's a lot of copycats and people that admitted things on their deathbed like i was db cooper <laughs> you know they, they die they slowly close their eyes and, <laughs> took their last breath yeah and there was people it's like I, I there was a secret i should have told you and i never did and you know all this kind of crap there's there's stories for days there's like documentaries that go into different people all over the place but really it's just it could be something so simple they say occam's razor you know where maybe he just died and it was off of the area where they were searching. And, and he eventually just got eaten by animals. And yeah, I, I mean, he bear. was out in Washington where there's plenty of wild animals. Yeah, wolves, bears. Yeah, and then also his, his picture was put out. So, you know, you would think pe- somebody would have come forward and been like, I know that guy. He's my next door neighbor. Well, and another interesting thing is that it was specifically, they think it was specifically done on Thanksgiving weekend, like a nice four-day weekend where this... Yeah, they they did all kind of searching of people not showing up for their jobs and stuff and just going away, but there was nothing. So they think he specifically did it the day before Thanksgiving. So he had a nice four day weekend to be able to land and be like picked up somewhere or hitchhiking somewhere uh, where, wherever he lands to be able to get back to his home and get back to his job and go on like nothing ever happened. Unless he died and never got back to his job. But then somebody would turn up missing somewhere. That's the thing. Somebody was missing if he did die. Or he was retired already. Or, I mean, he was 40. How old? Okay, that's what I was going to ask. How old he was? About 40. Okay, so he would likely, unless he's just gotten money in other ways and was well enough off to retire you would think he'd have a job at this point yeah probably somewhere you know involved with somebody with something whether he's retired or not like people would be looking for him right so all accounts he made it down and he went about his life normally and he didn't tell anybody 
So, I mean, this is the, the, the biggest theory is that he got away with it. And just went right back to his life. Yeah. But you would wonder if he had a previous crime. You know, would somebody really wake up one day and say, I'm going to hijack a plane and take $200,000? Like, you would think he would have had a life of crime before that. Or had like a bone to pick with uh, the airline. Yeah. And at some point, the stewardess did say, why are you picking Northwest Orient or whatever the name of the airline? Yeah. Why are you picking Northwest Orient? Do you have a problem with us? And he's like, no, it's not Northwest Orient. It's this is it's like this system. So he had something going on that made him angry at the system. Yes. He's at something airlines or whatever it might be. And And then did they look into like pilots that had been fired? And yes. But nobody came forward recognizing this guy. Yeah, I mean, there's a. They looked into every single person associated with the airlines. I mean, there's some stories. I might one of the people I might cover might might do that. Um, but it's just it's crazy, and it's the guy pretty much vanished. When nobody knows who it is. Like, I did a bunch of people come forward though and say, "I think I know that man." Oh yeah, tons, thousands, like mm-hmm. <laughs> like tons of leads. This is like the other one that I did where it's like, yeah, we got tons of leads, but they're not leaning towards yeah. anything. Um. So I, I just kind of wanted to go over some of the, the fate of everything that happened here. Um, this There was an author of an analysis of World War II aircrew pilots and bailouts, and he concluded that the probability of Cooper's survival may have been higher than suggested by popular opinion because they were like, well, there's no way he would survive. Like, it was a crappy parachute. He probably, it was dark. He probably hit a tree and got, you know, stabbed or wounded or whatever. And just, you know, whatever. I'm sure he be. planned for all of that. Yes, for sure. Because he knew it was going to be, I know you said it was about 8 p.m. Yeah. He knew getting on a flight at whatever time he did, um, 2.45 p.m., that with everything he had planned, it was going to lead to dark, which is probably what he actually wanted. He wanted it to be dark outside when he landed. That way you couldn't see where he landed. Exactly. So, you know, this guy claimed that Cooper jumped in conditions that were similar to crewmen that served during World War II. Mm. Like, this is very similar, and all these, you know, a lot of these guys survived. So... This isn't at all crazy. Um, the FBI was more skeptical. They're saying that he lacked crucial skydiving skills and experience. So they're like, well, we originally thought that Cooper was an experienced jumper and maybe even like a paratrooper in the day or you know, somebody that's definitely knows what they're doing. But they're like, no, because after a few years, we figured that wasn't true. No experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night in the rain with 172 mile an hour winds in his face wearing loafers and a trench coat. But it's like, yeah, like nobody's going to do that for fun. But if you're trying to get away with $200,000. That might be the perfect situation. Yeah, you calculate the risk and it's like, okay, I think I can get away with this here. Um, You jump, obviously you don't pull the chute right away. Um, You know, and just the way the plane was made, the engine wasn't close by. So it was pretty easy to get away with it and everything. Um, But he says it was simply too risky. He also missed that his reserve parachute was only for training and had been sewn shut. Okay, So, so the one wouldn't even have opened. Correct. Which is something that a skilled skydiver would definitely have checked before mm-hmm. putting it on. So I don't know if they did that on purpose or not, but he didn't notice that it was sewn shut and would have never opened. So I, I definitely agree with that. I feel like he probably had some experience, but not like an expert. Mm-hmm. So they're like, you know, a lot of the suspects they looked at were like very, very experienced. And they're like, nope, couldn't have been him because they would have noticed. So it, it, it's, it's crazy how... <laughs> Like, if you read about some of these people that it's like, nope, wasn't him because he didn't look like him. Nope, wasn't him too experienced. Nope, mm-hmm. wasn't him because he wasn't even in Seattle this time. Like, yeah, you just, could easily rule people out. Yeah, totally. So the FBI speculated from the beginning that Cooper did not survive the jump. Um, quote, diving into the wilderness without a plan, without the right equipment, in such terrible conditions, he probably never even got a shoot open. Hmm. Uh, 
which like but at the same time somebody would have turned up with somebody saying that he's missing you right, know. exactly. Even if he did land safe. And obviously they did look at all the missing people. Yeah. Okay. For sure. Um, even if he did land safely, agents contended that survival in the mountain's terrain at the onset of winter would have been all but impossible without somebody like sitting there and waiting for you, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe he did have somebody but that, that was in a car. But that would have been, like it had to be timed impeccably basically because of the all the variance with the wind and where you know he was guessing where he was right you know? right and maybe maybe he had you know an exact time where he was jumping but the wind was going to take him somewhere and he couldn't Steer. predict that and then the other thing is there were no cell phones for him to be like okay i'm over blah 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 come get me mm-hmm. and then it would also take cooperation with the flight crew but there's no evidence that suggests that that's what happened like not like Okay, fly uh, one degree left and whatever. Uh-huh. He basically said, get out of here. I got it. So he never specifically said, drop or like do this at this point. Right. Okay. From what so saying. he was just guessing. Right. So now we get into some suspects here. Um, you can see this, this, all these pages I have here. Yeah, that's a lot of pages. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this, and these are just the most interesting ones. Obviously, there's thousands of other ones. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, when I printed this out, you were like, holy shit, how I'm many like, pages? like, how many pages? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, don't we're worry. We're going to settle in for about a four-hour podcast. Don't worry, it won't be. But between 1971 and 2016, the FBI processed more than 1,000 serious suspects, including publicity seekers, deathbed confessors, like just everybody. And 2016, they formally closed the investigation. Okay, so it's just done. Because yeah. at this point in time, how old would he be? 80-something. Yeah, and tw- I mean, he could be dead. 85, 88, something like that. Yeah. Um, I did the the math on my end. So um, I'm going to go over, let's see. This one's interesting. Uh, Lynn Doyle Cooper. So LD Cooper. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's a man, Lynn? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So there's a very specific criteria we're looking for here. It had to have been somebody that was in the Portland area at this time, somebody that was around age 40 and had experience with all this, and they had to look like him. Correct. So that's very specific. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that surprises me that there were so many suspects. Well, they had to talk to them, at least see what it would, you know, what it would come up with. And you know, because if this like short squat bald guy came around, okay, well, we know you're not him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So and it's kind of olive skin too. So they said it could have been maybe a little um, like uh, Spanish or, you know, Hispanic of some sort. Okay. Um, but, you know, interesting. So anyways, uh, this Lynn Doyle Cooper, LD Cooper, um, he was a leather worker and a Korean War veteran, and he was a suspect proposed by his niece in July of 2011. Mm, nice niece. Yeah. Marla. Hey, uh, I think my uncle is D.B. Cooper. Well, and these are the other things. Like, these people start remembering things, and you're like, are you just trying to, like, fantasize and think that this person's really part of it? Or, you know, memory, they say, like, memory's dangerous, because you can think, without a doubt, I remember this happened this day, and it's totally yeah, wrong. Totally wrong. 100%. The other thing is, it would have to be somebody that started to live among, like, ab- above their normal means, because all of a sudden they've got what's equivalent to one point three million dollars. Yep. If we came into one point three million dollars, we'd probably start buying things that weren't within our typical budgets, unless they were smart about it and just did it slowly, I correct, guess, and invested in you know yeah. various securities and whatever, obviously. Um, but yeah, anyways, as an eight-year-old, this Marla Cooper, she recalled uh, Lynn Cooper. And another uncle planning something very mischievous. So she's eight years old. It's like, are you really Honey, remembering you're everything? Eight. Right. You, you, you don't. You were doing jump rope on the neighborhood sidewalk. The other thing is, would he really have used the same last name that he actually had? Yeah. You, well, maybe. I well, don't know. my name is Lynn Cooper. I'm going to make it D.B. Cooper and really derail them. No, Dan Cooper. 
Well, he yeah, Dan. Okay, Dan Cooper. But yes. why would what's his name, Lynn Cooper, use the same last name? Maybe you know because Cooper is a popular name. That Smith, would be you know. not very smart. No, it wouldn't. I agree. But this is probably my favorite guy. Okay. Just in case. Sorry, I'm going to shut my mouth. Yeah, please. Just you talk too much. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so it involved this very mischievous plan. Involved the use of expensive walkie talkies. So meaning that they would talk to each other as he was going down um, at her grandmother's house in Sisters, Oregon which is about 150 miles southeast of Portland. Okay. So totally doable in the area. The next day after they were talking about this, the flight was hijacked. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I just still can't imagine an eight-year-old coming up with this. Well, the plan was the uncles said they were turkey hunting. Mm. Okay. Later, she said her parents came... Uh, with, oh, okay. So uh, they, were, they were out turkey hunting. Then L.D. Cooper came home wearing a bloody shirt. The result, he said, of an auto accident. So he's like, oh, I got an auto accident. Don't worry about it. So he's home with this bloody shirt when he was supposed to be out hunting. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, hmm, okay, interesting. Later, she said her parents came to believe that L.D. Cooper was the hijacker. So her parents were like, I think uh, Lynn over here was the hijacker. I think he was D.B. Cooper. She also recalled that her uncle, who died in 1999, was obsessed. This is the, the best part, in my opinion. Was obsessed with the Canadian comic book hero, Dan Cooper. Hmm, interesting. And then choosing that name right. as your alias. Yep. And had one of his comic books thumbtacked to his wall, although he was not a skydiver or a paratrooper. So Lynn wasn't a skydiver or a paratrooper. Okay. But this Dan Cooper, he was big into skydiving, paratrooping type stuff. So I think this has something to do with it, this Dan Cooper comic book guy. Um but how would this Lynn Cooper know how to do the stairs and this, you know? Good question. Good question. In August of 20, 2011, New York Magazine published an alternative witness sketch reportedly based on a description by Flight 305 witness Robert Gregory depicting horn-rimmed sunglasses, a russet-colored uh, suit jacket with wide lapels, and Marcel hair. Marcel being like, yeah. Parted. Um, parted and also kind of greased. Mm-hmm. Um, the article notes that L.D. Cooper had wavy hair that looked Marcelled as did uh and then the fbi announced that no fingerprints had been found on a guitar strap made by ld cooper one week later they added that his dna did not match the partial dna uh, obtained on the hijacker's tie but they also said there's no certainty that the dna on the tie belonged Mm -hmm. to him so this one's i just from all the ones i read this one kind of but you're right i mean how would he know when to jump and how to jump and whatever i mean maybe he took a couple classes before he did it perhaps you know um and i'm sorry you said he did fit the description enough to suspect that this could be him yes yeah for sure so uh and also i also find it very interesting when like the fbi won't comment on a specific one Hmm. uh so they said they wouldn't make any comments on this guy so he was definitely somebody that they was they were seriously looking at just couldn't pin it on him 100 percent. did they search his premises to see if he had money stashed away in a bag yep (laughs) it's a good good point i mean i'm sure they did um yes they did and couldn't find anything on him um another one that's interesting you may have heard of the name john list yeah i actually did his uh story yeah so john list was a dorky lutheran like uh accountant yeah so everybody listen to this podcast we did a story on john list he was the guy that killed his family and was found like 18 years later via america's most wanted a bus they made yeah exactly so that that john list um was an accountant and World War II and Korean War veteran who murdered his wife, three teenage children, and his 85-year-old mother in New Jersey 15 days before the Cooper hijacking. He withdrew 200 grand from his mother's bank account and disappeared. And he went to the uh, Colorado area, Denver. Yep. 
So um, they were like, you know what? The authorities were like, well, he's a fugitive with nothing to lose. So, I don't think it was John Liss. Not a chance <laughs> in hell. Yeah. And after his capture in, in 1989, Liss admitted to murdering his family, but he denied anything about that. This man did not parachute from a plane. No way. Yeah. I thought that was interesting to bring up because we specifically went over John Liss. And he had a very specific look about him. Like he had those like kind of like jowly looking face. Yeah. Totally. And then I'm going to show you the uh, this picture here. This is another guy that I like just because he looks damn like him. Like, I mean, pretty much exactly Sheridan Preston. Okay. I mean, looks like John List. No, looks like uh, this. Is oh, D- this guy. Okay. Let me, Cooper, but yeah, John List kind of does look a little bit like that. Yeah, he looks like him. Yeah, he, he actually does look like him. Um, this guy, Sheridan Peterson. I'm sorry, Sheridan Peterson. Uh, served in the U.S. Marine Corps during World War II and later employed as a technical editor at Boeing. Okay. So the the maker of the planes. So wait, World War II was in the 1940s. So that would have been 30 years later in the 70s. How, unless you were a teenager, I don't know, whatever. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, you know, they took an interest of him after the skyjacking and his experience and smoke jumping. And he loved taking physical risks as well as his physical appearance and age. So he was 44 okay. at the time. So... He teased the this guy Peterson often teased the media about whether he was really DB Cooper. He'd be like, I don't know, who knows? The crazier things have happened. Um, entrepreneur Eric Ullis, who spent years investigating the crime, said he was ninety eight percent convinced that Peterson was Cooper, and he was in the area at the time and all of that. Uh, no, because he said. Um, when pressed by FBI agents that were like, okay, enough with the bullshit. Yeah, like this isn't a joke. Like you're somebody that we're looking at right now. Uh-huh. He said, no, I was in Nepal at the time of the skyjacking. Oh, that's co- quite a dif- distance from Seattle or Portland, I should say. Yeah, which you would say, I mean, you know, if you don't want him to get on your tail. But wouldn't we have proof that he was in Nepal? Not at this time, necessarily. You know, like maybe pictures or something like that, but not necessarily. There wasn't like a network of, uh, you know, right now, yeah, if he did it, but you know, the airlines don't necessarily share information. You could walk up and pay cash and say your name is Dan Cooper and mm-hmm. get on the damn plane. But no one in his family could attest to the fact, like, yes, we were in Nepal. Maybe they did. Maybe he maybe gave they them money. lied. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he gave them money. So he died in 2021. Okay. Oh, wow. Just this year, past yeah. year. Yep. Um, and there's just a number of different ones here. I think, let's see if I have one more that's kind of interesting to me. Um, William J. Smith. In November 2018, the Oregonian published an article proposing William J. Smith of Bloomfield, New Jersey. The article was based on research conducted by Army data analysts who sent his findings to the FBI in mid-2018. So people are still looking at I mean, mm-hmm. look at these true crime podcasts. Like Everybody thinks, like, oh, I'm going to bust it open. I mean, odds are the FBI looked into this here. Yeah, I mean, never in my wildest dreams would I think I could solve this case. Like yeah. he, The guy could have died on impact and been ravaged by animals and just gone. Yeah. Or he's likely dead by now. Right. But this guy, uh, William Smith, after high school, he enlisted in the Navy, volunteered for combat air crew training, and after his discharge, he worked for the Lehigh Valley Railroad and was affected by the, um, there's a bankruptcy, uh, the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history at that time. So, um, yeah, probably didn't get paid or whatever it is. So the article proposed that the loss of his pension created a grudge against the corporate establishment of the man, quote, the unquote, man. the man, and uh, the transportation field in general. So it also created a sudden need for money, which they said whoever did this probably needed money desperately, like right away. This is a pretty desperate act. Correct. And they're like, this isn't somebody just doing this for fun. This is something like, okay, shit, my, yeah, this is, this is serious. Mm-hmm. I need to do something here. So this guy was 43 years old at the time of the hijacking. And in his yearbook, a list of alumni killed in World War II lists Ira Daniel Cooper, possibly the source for the hijacker's pseudonym. Hmm. 
Okay, so the analyst claimed that Smith's naval aviation experience would have given him knowledge of planes and parachutes, and his railroad experience would have helped him find the railroad tracks to hop on. Mm -hmm. So that's actually really interesting. Well, that's a good theory that he used the railroad. Yeah, and as landing, he's like, okay, I'm gonna. I know the timing of this one is probably gonna be in an hour. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and the railroads are huge, so you jump in this area. Maybe there's a circular pattern, you know, something like that. Like that's, I love that that Mm -hmm. theory. That makes sense. Yeah. Then you're not stuck in the wilderness, right? And so, according to the analyst, aluminum spiral chips found on the clip-on tie that uh, would have come from a locomotive maintenance facility. Hmm. Uh, Smith's information about the Seattle area may have come from his close friend, Dan Clare, who was stationed at Fort Lewis during World War II. Um, Let's see. And Smith and Clare worked together at that Conrail in uh, Newark, New Jersey. Um, So let's see. The article noticed that a picture of Smith on the Lehigh Valley Railroad website showed a remarkable resemblance to Cooper FBI sketches. And the FBI said it would be inappropriate to comment on tips related to Smith. Hmm. So. And he was in this area at the time? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So that's not a good one. It's just, you know, you can go on for, for days reading about these people. But nothing ever obviously came to fruition. No. Nope. And so just to kind of wrap it up and everything, you know, I one of my previous stories was, you know, how the, the Tylenol murders, you know, now we have... Li- the, the protective seals over all the drugs and food and everything. So now this is the reason for airport security. Yes. Basically. Especially since it started to get out of control where copycat people are coming through and it's like, okay, time to do something about this. Yeah. And despite the initiation of federal sky marshal program the previous year, 31 hijacks were committed in the U S airspace in 1972. Okay. So a lot of people followed suit from him. So he kind of like got things started. Had kind hijacks of. happened before this? I'm sure. But I'm not in American you know, in soil and it, not as widespread. Yeah, it and sounds like this was a very popular story because of just the mystery of it and the fact that he was never found. Yeah, and out of the 31 hijackings, 19 of them were for specific purposes for extorting money. And most of the reps were attempts to reach Cuba. Okay. <laughs> I'm just thankful that nobody was harmed in his hijacking. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, and that's why we can talk about it kind of fun and be like, it, it is kind of fun and interesting. Because nobody was hurt. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, I mean, you know, some money was lost, but then, you mm-hmm. know, money's nothing. So, um, and then also the aircraft modifications were made. Uh, they put what's called a Cooper vein on the unlock. Interesting. <laughs> so that you can't physically unlock this thing you know, in this aircraft. You can't unlock it from the inside anymore. However, they probably would have unlocked the stairs and let him use them regardless, even if it had a lock on it, because they don't want to die. Right. It's like, well, I'm going to blow up this plane if you do not engage these stairs. Yeah. And it was a really simple device. I mean, you just kind of move it. back. Yeah. And <laughs> so obviously they would have engaged the stairs regardless because yep. they want to preserve their lives. Right. So. So yeah, that's that's uh, that's my story of DB Cooper. I always wondered because people talk about it all the time, and I looked into it. And I'm like, okay, this is an interesting damn situation here. Yeah, that's interesting, and the fact that I've never it doesn't even ring a bell. Yeah. So Dan Cooper, DB Cooper, whatever you want to call him, kind of a interesting the the most prolific of uh, hijacking in you know U.S. history. It always just bugs me to not truly know what happened. I know. Like I really just I want to know if he made it alive or not. I'm sorry, we have no idea. And you know they only came across that fifty eight hundred dollars. What happened to the rest? of it yeah blew it on hookers and blow probably that's just kind of to prove that he didn't die right yeah has it somewhere i'm sure it's still circulating i still can't understand how he went out to this random location and just like put fifty eight hundred dollars yeah that seems kind of yeah it maybe it fell weird. out as it was i don't know yeah, yeah. it's it, there, there's theories i mean there is 
a million different documentaries on this thing. A Interesting. Million. So go ahead if you're interested at all. I saw one on YouTube. I think there's one on HBO Max right now that just came out recently. And it's the one on HBO Max is more around why this got so popular, like mm-hmm. why people clamped onto it, like the, the, the psychological aspect of it all. Yeah. And why people thought it was so cool. And, you know, I mean, you know, the guy with shades on and a businessman breezed into the airport and parachute out of a uh, parachuted out of a plane. I mean, that's pretty crazy. It's badass. It's like bit. something out of a movie. Yeah. Like 007. Exactly. It's, it's like, a, no, this doesn't actually happen in real life. Smoking a cigarette, drinking his bourbon and <laughs> yeah. soda. I'm like, all right, later. Peace out. Peace. Yep. So that's D.B. Cooper. Interesting. Good story. Thank you. Thank you. And meanwhile, we've got our little puppy in the room with us. Yeah, I don't think anybody cares. Well, I do because she's precious. She is, and huh? if you've seen a picture of her on Instagram, you'll know why I'm obsessed with her. Yeah, we'll she's share. I'll... The cutest thing ever. Yeah, pretty much cutest dog I've ever seen in my life. I can't stop staring at her. I, I even got a tattoo on my wrist for her. It doesn't look like a dog, though. It's not a tattoo of a dog. It's a poppy, a poppy, poppy flower. flower, because that's her name, Poppy. Yeah, her name is Poppy, and she's precious. And it's actually called Princess Poppy Pumpkin Pie Pernecki is her name. Okay, good. I think we've bored these people enough. So, <laughs> hey, thanks for listening. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you could be so kind and uh, listen to us again next week. Yes. And happy new year to you. We're hoping that you all have a very safe and healthy year. And thank you for being here and we'll see you next time. Bye.